Let us pray. Heavenly Father, help us to know that we are secure in you, and help us to remember this world around us is a reminder of that, that you are our fortress and foundation. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Our psalm this morning is Psalm 48, and you'll notice you have your little handout again this morning, and I I find myself still contemplating this psalm as as we enter into the sermon time this morning. It's a a peculiar psalm, and I'll, I'll try and flesh that out a little bit as we move through it. But Psalm 48 is attributed, it says, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Now, if you have a far, far better memory than I do, you might remember who the, psalm, the sons of Korah are, or who Korah is, to be more exact. But if, if you're not very good at remembering things like I am, then this will be your reminder. You may remember, though, that in, in Exodus, there comes a point where about 250 men are, are pretty fed up with Moses, and they're wondering, well, how long are we going to be wandering around this wilderness? And What's going on? And, and one of the leaders of this men, of these men, his name was Korah. So this is that man's descendants who wrote this psalm, which is pretty interesting in and of itself, especially as you start to understand and remember what happened to poor Korah and his 250 friends as they complain against Moses. Moses says, well, okay, we'll ask God what he wants. And they respond, all right, we'll, we'll follow along. And then... Well, the earth swallows up Korah and his friends. It's a very unfortunate end. But it is interesting that what this is telling us when we read this little heading is that apparently not all of Korah's sons thought that Korah was on the right track. And so who did they become? The sons of Korah became um, servants and priests in the temple. So this psalm this morning is a song of worship that they would have used in the temple. It's a very formal song, and it's it's rather an interesting one. And so these men are are priests and servants in the temple. They they serve God day in and out in the temple. So it's fitting that as we read it, they see God's glory and beauty just fulfilled in the city, in the city that he planted, in the city in which the temple is rising up out of. And this starts to give us our base of understanding the psalm. Because you see, when you're at home, truly home, not not your house, the place that you're, you're genuinely home, it's easy to see the goodness of God displayed there because you feel secured there. You feel secure in the place that is truly your home because you know that if you have a loving and caring spouse, he or she will listen to you and care for you there. You know that there you can lock your doors at night and fall asleep and not worry about wolves coming for you or any, any other issue. That is, if you're, if you're truly, truly home. Part of that homeness is security. And then you can pause long enough to see God's glory. Now they start by praising God in three ways. They say the city, the holy city, is beautiful. They say that the city of God brings joy to the whole earth. And they say that in that city, 
they are secure. The holy city is beautiful, and we are, re- we are reminded that humanity is created in the image and likeness of God. You and I were created to represent God in some way, and part of this is that we are creative in and of ourselves. And if we look at how God created the world, right, you know, if, if, if the world just evolved and there was no divine presence in it, the world probably wouldn't be particularly beautiful. And yet the world is amazingly beautiful. Pause this afternoon when you have 15 minutes and just look at a tree or look at your pet or something like that, and you'll see the beauty of God, the beauty of God's creation splayed out before you. But because you and I are also created in this, we have this mandate, this desire, this need to also create beauty. Now, I know a couple of you are painters, and and I've seen your painting, and it's very beautiful, but many of us, you know, can barely draw a stick figure, and even then they might be the stick figures of nightmares. Um, Some of you have seen my drawings. You you know where I'm going with that. Um, But we're not just talking about art here. You can create beauty in your families by loving your family well, by by serving them and caring for them. You can create beauty where you live by caring for your house and loving your neighbors well. You can create beauty if you still work by working to the glory of God. Creating beauty just isn't, isn't just making beautiful art, although that is a part of creating beauty, but it's how you care for the things around you. But beauty isn't an end of itself. Beauty is wonderful. But beauty points towards God. Because ultimately, he is the source of all beauty. I pray that when you read God's word and hear it exposited well, that is explained well, that you see that beauty pour out of it. As you see God working in this world, being just and merciful, being loving and kind. You see how deep his beauty truly is. The city of God also brings joy to the end to the whole to the whole earth. And what's really interesting about this psalm is the psalm isn't inward looking to Jerusalem. So often many of the psalms are sort of inward looking, and it's easy to get inward looking, but this psalm pushes out. And here the joy of God pours out of the city of God into the whole world. And it starts to hint at what this psalm is really pointing towards. It's pointing towards something deeper. It's pointing towards the fact that the gospel has gone out into the whole world. The love of God is not meant to be kept under a basket. It's not meant to be secret. It's not meant for us to just whisper of it to each other and then not tell anybody else. But it's meant to go out into the world. Very practically, we have a couple of really exciting things going on right now in the parish. One is it's Operation Christmas Child season, in which we can fill a box, which is quite a joyful thing, send it in, and then it sends off to, some, to the ends of the world for some child to have some tangible joy, but also a chance to hear the gospel proclaimed to him or her. And another thing we are doing is we're starting, we, we now have the little books for the word one-to-one, and it's, it's a really helpful way for those of you who would like to read scripture with somebody but feel sort of ill-equipped 
where you can take these books and sit down with a friend over a cup of coffee and just read and discuss it with them and help God's word speak or allow God's word to speak for itself. And so these are ways in which we can help the joy of God to go out into the end of the world. And there's many, many other ways, of course. Finally, in this little section, we, if you remember back to you know, Psych 101 and learning about Maslow and his hierarchies of need, if you remember, way down at the bottom, the two, there's two little ones on the bottom, and, and security is second to the bottom. It's the very base of Maslow's little triangle of what you and I need to be functioning human beings. We all need this sense of security, and when we don't have it, it, it makes us uncomfortable. It, it freaks us out. It, it scares us. And for the reader of the psalm, when they heard about the city, they would have known, yes, in the city, or at least in some form of community, when we live together, we have safety. When we're out you know, caring for the sheep or wandering around in the wilderness, there's, there's danger there. But if we have a little community or a city, we can be safe from all of those things that might hurt us. But the, salt, the, the sons of Korah point us to something deeper. It's not the city in and of itself that brings the people security. It's not the kingdom. It's not the king that reigns in the city. It's not the king's armies. It's not government that brings security. But it is God himself. God brings the people security. And that's why there's security in the city of God, because that's where God resides. And then we can push this a little further. If you're in Christ, you can see his beauty. You know his joy. And because of that, you can also have assurance of security. Security that your soul is his. And that one day, you will join him in the kingdom of heaven. Now in verse 5, Korah, the sons of Korah changed their focus. They, they changed their focus to the things that threaten the city and its security. In verse 5 and 7, it's, it's quite interesting how it's arranged. Verse 5 and 7 talk of two different things that threaten the security of the city. The first is kings, and the second is ships of Tarshish. And you might wonder, well, that's odd that there's the ships of Tarshish. And we'll get to that in just a second. When he speaks of the kings, of course, though, we can recognize them as, as mighty political powers, right? There'd be kings that march down, armies down upon Jerusalem and, and want to sack it. And, and, the, and the sons of Korah say, no, God will protect us from that. God will protect us from political powers that might wish to do us harm. But the second is the, is the ships of Tarshish. Glad that that wasn't Lucy hitting her head. <laughs> the second is the ships of Tarshish. And this one's a lot more interesting and took a little digging to get to. I think what they represent is economic power. They go out, these big ships filled with, with, with lots of things to sell and to trade and to make their kingdom rich. And it's really easy, right, to trust in political power and economic power. And we often want to have control over these different parts of power. And when we don't, we get really concerned. But what the, the sons of Korah are about to show us is, is no. God is sovereign even over political power that we don't like, economic 
powers that we don't like. And yes, of course, political power we do like, and economic power we do like. <clears throat> but then we look at six and eight, so we have this odd sort of five, seven, six, eight. And it, it starts to clarify what this psalm is pointing to. Jesus makes a statement that's strikingly similar to verse 6 in, in Matthew 24. So in Matthew 24, if you don't remember, is this long treatise that's basically like, guys, don't try and figure out when I come back, which of course we have people you know, every other decade or every other year that are like, I know when Jesus is coming back. And it's like, no, stop, please. <clears throat> he, he, he's, he, has, he makes a statement in that section that all these signs that we'll see in the world around us, wars and, and rumors of wars and, and so on and so forth, are, are achings and groanings like, the, like a woman in labor. Now, even if, if you've never had a child, I've never had a child, but I have a child that my wife made, you know what it's like for somebody to give birth. It's, it's, it's long, right? It takes a long time from you know, nine months to go by, but it, those last 24 hours or so are exceptionally painful. But the moment after that child gets out, when you hold that child for the first time, you feel them breathing, even if it's not your own child, but a dear friend's child or, or a, one of your siblings' children, and you hold that child for the first time, my goodness, what exceeding beauty do we experience. And this is what Korah and, and, and Jesus picks up on, right? That, that, that we go through hardships in this life, that they'll be sometimes exceedingly hard. But what Jesus is pointing to isn't a hope for tomorrow, unless he comes back, which gives away what he's, he's driving at, but it's our hope in eternity, it's our hope that one day we will experience the exceeding beauty of the kingdom of heaven. And this, I think, is really what the psalm is driving at. And verse 8 kind of seals that deal. The psalmist talks about how he will establish his city forever. And, and first of all, we do have to remember that psalms are poetic, and maybe we don't need to read this totally literally, but the reality is, is we know the history of Jerusalem. Jerusalem has been sacked not once, but at least twice in its history. And of course, this is being written before the first sacking. And so it seems the psalmist is not writing about Jerusalem as he knew it, but new Jerusalem. The Jerusalem that you and I look forward to being citizens of. The Jerusalem that we will be citizens of in eternity. And the revelation of St. John, I think, actually really drives this home. Because if, if you've read it, and, and maybe you have, maybe you haven't, and maybe it gave you nightmares, maybe it didn't. It's, a, it's a, quite a book to read. But I think it drives home this point. Because if you remember, if you remember the last time you read the book of Revelation... The thing that is overthrown in that book are economic powers and political powers. They are shattered under God's hand of judgment. All the people, that, all, all the powers that 
don't judge or don't trust in God are wiped away, just as we see in this psalm. And they run kind of parallel to each other. These things are failing hopes. But rather, the psalm reminds us to place our hope in the King, Christ the King, that will, who will make you a citizen of his eternal kingdom that will never fail and never fall away. As we turn to the second half of the psalm, it becomes a little clear that we have this future vision of the gospel when God's love in Christ reaches unto the end of the world. The sons proclaim that they consider that they are reminded of God's steadfast love as they enter into the temple. As they enter into the temple, they, they pray and they praise God because they know his steadfast love. His steadfast love that tells them that God is faithful through thick and thin. For Israel, if you remember when, the, when they're, the disciples and Jesus are entering into Jerusalem and the disciples are like, wow. That temple is amazing. Does, does everybody remember that, that passage in the gospel? They enter and it's just, it's just amazing. And they're reminded of God's faithfulness because there's this temple there, right dab smack in the highest point of the city. But I think most of us know at least a little tiny bit about Jerusalem. The temple is gone and there's now something else sitting on the temple mount that doesn't remind us of God's goodness and faithfulness. There's no physical temple to be this, boom, I remember that God is loving. Boom, I remember that God is faithful. And so what do we do? St. Paul tells us that those of you, those of us who are in Christ, are the temple of the living God. In other ways, words, in a very real way, if you are in Christ, you are a living reminder of the love of God in Christ for the world. And so being the temple of Christ, we are to be a reminder of God's love for the world. Last night, Julie and I were reading this prayer and meditation by a Puritan author, and, and it comes across the same idea of this love poured out by us into the world. And the author wrote, May I by love serve others and please my neighbor for his good edification. May I attend to what is ornamental as well as essential in religion, pursuing the things that are lovely and of a good report. The author of this poem and this psalm and hopefully my sermon all remind us that your witness in this world is to be filled with the otter, the, the sense, the, the taste of God's love for you. Because of this love of God, his praise, or this love from God, his praises will reach to the end of the earth. They will spread out. It is because of this love that people come to know Christ, that lit, come to reside in him. And on his right hand is righteousness, the sons of Korah tell us. And we are reminded that that is where Christ is seated. Christ, we are reminded, is God's righteousness manifested amongst us. And not only that, but if you are in Christ, you are given 
his righteousness freely. You haven't earned it. You haven't done it by your own works, but Christ has put his righteousness upon you. And in that, there's freedom from, freedom from God's judgment, but also freedom to desire God's judgment because we know when Christ returns, there will be judgment. And because of that, you will be freed from your sin. You'll be freed from the shame of your sin. Anything that Satan might use against you to accuse you, Christ has freed you from. And you'll be freed from the great travails of this world. All the pain and suffering that you've experienced, all the pain and suffering that others have experienced will be wiped away. And so we desire God's judgment and we rejoice when the judgment comes. For the Christian, this is beautiful. For the Christian, there is beauty, there is justice, there is righteousness. And all of this makes us secure. It allows you to be bold and not fearful for the sake of your home because your home is not here. You have a temporary home, a wonderful home perhaps, but your truest home is the kingdom of heaven. The final three verses, verses 12 through 14, end us with an exalted view of Zion. And it, it points us to something deeper than just Jerusalem, but rather to the new Jerusalem. If you haven't read Revelation, you you should at some point, um, maybe not right before you go to bed. But there's something that these last three verses echo in in the 21st chapter of Jerusalem. The the angel that gives John a tour, if you will, of of what's what's to come, tells him, well, measure the city, describe it. And he describes this massive city that's incredibly beautiful where God resides. And if you read it and you're not reading it carefully, you might skip over the most interesting part of this, or or I think it's one of the most interesting parts. That's in the 25th verse of the 21st chapter. And it's that the gates of of, of New Jerusalem never close. They will never shut. And you might be thinking, well, yeah, because people can come in that way. But bear in mind, New Jerusalem is established after the judgment. Our citizenship has already been determined. It's not about who can come and go, but it's about what doesn't exist in the recreation. And that's evil. The gates of Jerusalem don't close because there's nothing to threaten the New Jerusalem. And so as we read these last three verses and we contemplate New Jerusalem, we note two Incredible things. New Jerusalem is a place of incredible beauty. And New Jerusalem is a place of incredible, unimaginable security. Your home, my friends, is this New Jerusalem. This New Jerusalem that Psalm 48 subtly and not so subtly points to. Your home, in your home, your true home, you will enjoy the beauty of, the, of God's creation the beauty of recreation, and you will enjoy security beyond your wildest imaginations. And so in this world, in our temporary home, 
You can be bold. You can praise God and show his love unto the whole of the world. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.